Aquilo. Season 2. Chapter 14. Lemons, Apples, and a Dash of Hope. I spent so much time worrying about what would Doris do, and then about what would Miriam do. But now, with Agnes gone, I realize that neither matters when the chips are down. The luxury of personal affirmation is slipping through my fingers. Who cares whose example I follow, or whether I should be true to myself when lives hang in the balance? I already know that, when all's said and done, having done my best will be little consolation if it's at the funeral of a friend. So here I am, in my empty cafe, still leafing through that stupid book of nonsense recipes, and I'm no closer to an answer than I was a week ago. I only notice my mug is empty when I bring it to my lips. The grinder is also empty, so I can't even make more coffee. Even the display case is empty. No croissants, no pastries, no brioche. Not even a lonely little cookie. My friends are scattered. Helen Edna, notary public, is in a hospital in Montreal. Gulliver vanished, and a quick walk around the block didn't reveal where he'd parked his truck. Olivia won't talk to me, and even my best customers are gone. In a week's time, my entire world has flipped upside down, and the one person I thought annoyed me most in town is now the closest friend I've spoken to in days. Meanwhile, Peter has managed to shape Aquilo into exactly what he wants, all while nearly charming the pants right off me. Right off everyone, really. What I wouldn't give to go back to a week ago. Except... What if I could? I'm not talking about time travel. I doubt there's a recipe for a donut that turns back the clock in this book. Is there? But I can do something just as good, can't I? What if the solution isn't to do my best, but rather what I'm best at? Peter took Aquilo away from me, chipping off one piece at a time before I could even figure out what was going on. Maybe it's an accident, or maybe he did it specifically to isolate me, make me desperate to help him find his aquilo tree. But he's underestimated me. I remember once in cooking school, we did a whole week of learning chocolatier techniques. It was close to the end of my first year and around Easter. The whole thing was meant to be a learning experience, but also a sort of fun treat. We got to combine several baking and confectionery techniques, all while learning the fine points of flavoring, tempering, and shaping chocolate. And I was an absolute beast at it. A natural. My final project, my pièce de résistance, was going to be a chocolate Fabergé egg with four different essences of chocolate, sugar glass, and a layered cake filling. Either by accident or out of jealousy... To this day, I don't know. My classmate Natalia knocked over the large, decorated eggshell that was going to serve as a box to the cake interior. The delicate chocolate egg tipped, hit the counter, and shattered. There was no way I was going to have time to make another one. I considered coating the cake instead, but that would have taken away from the illusion of a hollow shell with cake inside. My carefully planned dessert was taken from me cracked and broken. 
like the ache willow that I learned to love in the last year. When I saw the pieces of chocolate egg strewn around my workstation, I thought I was going to cry. Instead, I did what I do best and went full kintsugi on that egg. There was no way I could make a shell from scratch, but I could repair it. And the only way to make those repairs without it looking like a mess was to embrace the chaos. I welded each piece back together with white chocolate and then highlighted it with edible gold paint, making each crack clear as day. The point is, I can't bring Aquilo back to what it was before Peter and Agnes. What I can do is put it back together and accept the cracks left behind. And the only way I know how to do that is by cooking. There we go. Lemon Lavender Bars. It's an old recipe, one of Madeline's. It's a delicious treat that women at the time would give their husbands in an effort to keep them from straying. There are notes, some in Doris's handwriting, I notice, about love and fidelity in the margins. As close to what I want as this is, there's something missing. Something's wrong or inadequate. Time, I whisper. I've seen time over and over on other pages, and more often than not, it was included to help restore energy, bring good health, and offer protection. I roll the idea in my head for a moment. Lemon time bars. I've never had any, but it doesn't sound like such an outlandish recipe. In fact, that sounds downright delicious. All right, ladies, I say, looking up at the rack of wooden spoons hanging above the register on the wall. Let's see if I'm worthy of the name Dufour. The ingredients for a lemon time bar aren't very exotic. They're all things I can dig up from the Aquilo's cupboards and refrigerator. However, while I love the kitchen in Doris's apartment, I can't expect to produce the volume needed in such a small and intimate setup. I'm not just aiming for a delicious lemon bar. I'm going for a perfect balance of calming and invigorating. I have to not only create a dessert that will incorporate two nearly diametrical reactions, but harmonize them so they work in unison. Trickier still, I need to make industrial quantities while maintaining the visceral connection that serves as the foundation of any good magic. All of that without Doris's spoon, without the trinkets and souvenirs that conjure her presence, and without anyone to buttress my confidence. What is magic? I ask, pulling out flour, butter, and of course, lemon and thyme. I look at my ingredients, all lined up like soldiers standing at attention, waiting on my orders. The sheer volume is intimidating, more than for any dish I've prepared, and I've made a Christmas feast for half of Aquilo over the holidays. More than for any dish I've ever prepared, and I made a Christmas feast for half of Aquilo over the holidays. Magic is intent. I have got intent to spare, and I know how to summon more. Red wine fills a glass, and I light a lavender candle. I pour honey onto a spoon and put it in my mouth to melt on my tongue. The proportions aren't right, and the aroma is too weak on the grapes and too strong on the lavender. Still, smell is the key to memory, and that's enough to do the trick. My skin grows flush, and I can feel my blood warm at the memory. 
I lick my lips, pulling back the curtain on the last two days of experience. While I made every effort to resist Agnes's aura, now I fully embrace it. Whether this attraction is real barely matters at this point. The will and drive to preserve and protect her from Peter is all I need. Intent enough to make these lemon bars work. Intent enough for everyone. I crack my knuckles, pick up a plastic spoon, and get started. Whoa, what happened here? I heard his truck pull up in front of the cafe. I heard the chimes when he came in. I didn't ignore him. In fact, I was hoping Gulliver would show up on his own so that I didn't have to hunt him down across Aquillow again. The moment the shadow of his trailer fell on the tables and chairs of the dining room, I took one of the hundreds of lemon bars cooling on the counter and delicately put it in a gift box. I make sure it's secured in place with a few pieces of cardboard before I tie the box closed with a pretty sage-colored ribbon. I made lemon bars. Did you? I couldn't tell. I had to set the AC to maximum so that the aquila would be as chill as possible. In the heat of summer, I don't want to risk my work going to waste by having the glaze melt off. Gulliver lowers himself so the counter is eye-level for him, taking in the impressive sight of 287 lemon thyme bars, each with a small sprig for decoration and a drizzle of white glaze for flavor. Too gross, minus the one I just put in the box. I need a ride to the hospital, I explain, putting lemon bar after lemon bar into a cake box. Then, I need you to go to Montreal, as fast as possible. It's difficult to say if he's listening to me, still awestruck with the vast sea of golden delights. Gentle enough to pick up a baby bird, he lifts one of the bars, held between index and thumb. May I? I insist, I answer, rushing to make him a mug of coffee. Fresh grounds are put into the machine, who lets off an angry hiss, pissed off at being neglected for so long. Not now, I admonish the device. What do you think? Delicious, as always. What's in it? Oh, you know, sugar, butter, flour, lemon juice, and some thyme. The usual. He nods while taking another bite, and I observe him like a lab specimen. Does his back straighten, or is it my imagination? Are his eyes less bloodshot and more alert? He seems to perk up as his jaw works the soft sponge. The time is unusual, but I like him. Why do you need so many? It's a gift to all my customers, a way to get them back here before I go out of business. Coffee? I push the mug in his direction, expecting him to take a sip of it to help the lemon bar go down, but he looks at the delicious French blend with hesitation. No thanks. He seems surprised at his own refusal. I'm already quite alert. They work. At least the part meant to fend off the lethargy works. All right, then. Mind helping me pack those? Sure. Gulliver knows enough to wash his hands first, but when he comes back, he stops to look at the lonely cake in its little gift box. What about this one? That one? You're going to ask your EMT friend where they took Helen Edna, and you're going to bring that to her and you're going to make sure she eats it. The next step in my devious plan requires a specific ingredient. I did my readings. I know my basics now. No one took my hand and guided me through the steps. 
But while the Dufour recipe book doesn't have exactly what I need, it does supply me with enough examples that I can figure out what each bit does. From there, I can disassemble a few dishes, take the pieces, and put them back together in just the right way that will give me the results I need. But it's not just the ingredients. It's their quality, how they connect to the world, the effort in acquiring them, that matters. What I need is simple. I could go buy some at any grocery store. However, exchanging convenience in favor of potency is the name of the game. I need apples. Henry stands on the threshold of his home. He's wearing the same three things as always. A shirt, overalls, and a frown. Apples, he repeats. You walked all the way here for apples? They're the best apples. Hogwash. Did he just say hogwash? An apple's an apple, he continues. Our apples are available at Lucy's Groceries downtown. Can't believe they'd be out already. I shake my head. Lucy's is closed. Everything in Aquilo is closed. People are either at home or at the hospital. I'm trying to help them, but I need apples. I need your best apples. The sweetest, the freshest, and the crispest. Against all logic, his frown deepens. I worry that he might get a cramp, or his face will swallow his eyes if he overdoes it. It's that girl, isn't it? Or her so-called brother? I nod, knowing it's the wrong thing to do. There's something about Henry. When he's not sleeping in his recliner or grumbling his way through town doing deliveries, you can see the shadow of something formidable moving and shifting behind his eyes and under his skin. It's a cliché comparison to make, but he's like aged whiskey, perhaps less potent, but more complex and refined. It's tempting to bring that power with me. Unleash it on Peter and find out what that member of the mysterious Fig family is capable of. But I made a promise. Let me get my gear, he says, turning around. My hand closes around his forearm before he can take a single step. It's like taking hold of a stack of tightly wound steel cables. I didn't know that running an orchard could give a man that kind of muscle. In fact, I very much doubt it's his work that offers him the workout. No, no gear, I say, though I would positively kill to know what Henry Fig's gear is. Just apples. The old man turns around. There's a vibration to his sinewy muscles, like a kettle on the brink of boiling. Doris wouldn't have turned down my help. Well, I'm not Doris, and I made a promise to Olivia. Damn woman thinks I'm too old for this. Do I dare push my luck? I always imagined that Doris and Olivia's relationship was closer to a bridge club than a coterie of witches. And maybe that's the truth. But those rumors that there's no vampires in Aquilo because of Henry, and Helen Edna's warning about the figs having more secrets than they're willing to share, hinted something more than Friday night bingo for the old girls. Just the apples this time, Mr. Fig. Hmm, he growls. I could just give you the apples and then follow you back to town, see what's going on and take care of it myself, you know. It'd be safer for you. I stand my ground and hold his gaze. It's like he's got an itch, and I'm telling him he can't scratch it. Whatever it was he did with Doris back in the day, it was second nature to him. 
It's impossible for me to know if he liked it or if it was more of a responsibility, but the need to do something goes deep in the roots of who this man is. Fine, he says. Maybe I am too old for this sort of thing. The apples. Some kind of love thing? Aphrodisiac? Yes. Resisting the urge to ask how he knows that requires an effort that borders on the physical. If I had a needle and thread on hand, I'd stitch my mouth shut to keep from asking any questions. Stay here. Henry Fig walks back into his house like a man defeated. It's hard not to think of him as a retired veteran, dreaming of being called back into service and hungering for his glory days. How much truth is there in what the kids say? It's difficult to think of any town in Quebec or Vermont suffering from an outrageous vampire problem, but also, I would never have imagined that I'd be going up against demons and ghosts, either. I look back at the empty driveway and the old wooden barn. What if Doris and the figs once did what I'm doing, hunting the things that go bump in the night? How did it all come to this, growing fruit making cider? Here. Henry says, offering up a plastic bag filled with some of the reddest, most fragrant apples I've ever seen or smelled. Olivia's been working on a cross between Honeycrisps and Macintosh. If those don't do the trick, nothing will. I tossed in some cloves, too, in case you don't have any. And if you have apricots on hand, think about squeezing in some of their juice. What the hell is that? On any average day, I'd bristle at most anyone telling me how to bake my desserts, but who has time for outrage when this confused? How the hell does sleepy, old, maybe-vampire-hunting Henry Fig know what goes into an aphrodisiac? Good thinking, I mutter, stunned. Well, he says, disappointed at my lack of follow-up questions. I guess I should go back to doing orchard things. I was thinking of rose water, but apricots are a much better idea. More subtle and easier to marry with the taste of apples. I'm no idiot, though. I had already figured out the cloves. Back at Doris's apartment, I flip back and forth between the various pages that I've bookmarked. The Dufour recipe book is already thick with them. Doris's are modern and tend towards cute woodland animal prints. The rest are easily identifiable as belonging to each of the other Dufour women, but I can't decide which is which. Only, there's one missing, but folded upper corners hint that maybe one of my predecessors used that method to keep her pages. I don't dare move or remove any of the bookmarks. Neither Doris nor Philemon nor Amelia nor Madeline dared take any out. I doubt I should be the one to break tradition. My bookmarks aren't very fancy. Folded up receipt paper, though I did make an effort to try and make interesting shapes with them. One is of a somewhat convincing origami crane. Another is folded like an accordion. It's not as pretty as the few made from carefully bent paper clips, or as ornate as the ones made of pressed flowers, but it does the trick. I feel like Dr. Jekyll in my laboratory. All the ingredients are laid out in front of me with a recipe book open on a previously unmarked page depicting a delicate little apple tart. Someone scribbled a bunch of tiny hearts in the margin, like an infatuated schoolgirl might do in her workbook. The day is already stretching long, and I'm still waiting for the results of my previous experiment. However, while I was testing a salve and inoculation on the rest of Aquilo, what I'm about to attempt is the complete opposite. 
My lemon bars had two purposes. To reinvigorate and to... <clears throat> calm urges. Without any actual magic, my cooking is already damn near sorcery. That doesn't mean I expect the results to be miraculous. But any little thing I can do to undo Peter's work and render him powerless within the boundaries of the city will serve my purposes fine. The apple, and now apricot, tart I'm creating will be an irresistible aphrodisiac. If all goes well, whoever eats this flaky feast will become the most seductive and alluring person for miles around. I don't know that it will be as potent as what Peter and Agnes exude, but it doesn't have to be. The delicacy is for me. I may not be a supermodel. In fact, most days I barely think of my looks, and when I do, it's always with a sigh and a promise to do more exercise. But I don't need to compete with a succubus in this race. I just need to be a little faster than the rest of the herd. I need to stand out. I need Peter to notice me standing out. I take a final look at the shelf under the windowsill and take in the various decorations and trinkets that adorn it. I should probably put most of these in a box and replace them with my own things. If this is going to be my own kitchen, then I suppose this should also be the altar where I center myself. Short of that, maybe I can still ask for Doris's blessing, if not her help. All right, great-grand-aunt, let me show you what the next generation of Dufour can do. Let's make a honeypot. The ball took little time to get rolling. The wound inflicted on Aquilo was either more shallow than I had expected, or the medicine I administered was more efficient than anticipated. Either way, by the time evening comes and the sun starts tucking itself between the buildings across the street, the laceration is stitching itself back together already. The first sign of this miraculous recovery walks into the Aquilo accompanied by the gentle song of the door chimes. Ilias Payne still walks with a limp from the injuries he suffered over the holidays, and I wouldn't call him a regular anymore, but he tends to drop by once a week for coffee. Always a generous tipper, but also apologetic in his demeanor. It's a little jarring to have him be the first of my clients to reappear. It's also difficult to remember his usual. Good evening, Mr. Payne, I greet him, putting on my best impression of someone who's glad to see the man. Ice coffee with no sugar? While he seems to have little trace of the lethargy that struck all of my customers and most of Aquilo for the last week, there's still a moment of confusion. It's as if he's encountering me for the first time, struggling to put a name to my face. Is that what I usually take here? Oh boy. Either Peter's influence has longer-lasting effect on memory than I had thought, or my lemon bars cure one ailment while causing a whole new one. I believe it is, but tell you what. If when you taste it, you decide it's not, I'll make you something else. Also, I'm sorry I don't have much variety of snacks and pastries. I've been trying to restock, and I'll only have sandwiches tomorrow. Ilias scratches his chin while eyeing the display case. I wasn't lying, apart from a row of basic but still amazing chocolate chip cookies. I haven't stopped being me. All I have are more lemon thyme bars and six freshly baked and glazed pistachio marzipan petit four. The only thing not magical behind the glass right now are the cookies, and most of those who've tasted them will probably argue in favor of their supernatural potential. So it's not the grandiose odyssey of flavors I usually have available, but considering how little time I had to put this together, I'd say it's pretty good. 
Besides, I have some choux pastry ready to go in the oven and some creme patissiere in the fridge to fill them with. Ilias Payne makes for poor conversation, sitting at a table and looking outside while I make his coffee. After a few minutes, he's joined by others. Members of the cloud cult, led by their braided blonde leader Ian, file in. Thankfully, they're satisfied with some tea and waiting for the shoe pastries. There's no way I could have made croissants in a single afternoon. Julia Remington, Detective Wilson, the man who sells butterflies, and a few of the bank employees make their way into the cafe, and by the time the streetlights come on, the aquilo is packed. But it's not bustling. Everyone is alert and awake, but otherwise sedate. The lethargy is gone, but so are the passions and emotions. Barely a conversation is had, and apart from the occasional thank you for the lemon bar, no one seems to have so much as a drop of curiosity regarding recent events. The entire village was fine, then sick, then well again, but no one seems to care. The touch of Peter's claws may be mending, but the scars remain visible, a burning red that expresses itself through residual apathy. Or maybe it's my lemon bars. I did borrow from spells that cured lethargy and invigorated, but also that suppressed passions. The inoculation against Peter and Agnes's presence also dulls the edges of everyone's emotions. Most are content looking at their phones or through the large window and into the street. Pat spends his time taking apart the pieces of his cookie, piling the chocolate chips on one side of the plate and the cookie crumbs on the other. Only the members of the cloud cult have any life in them, chatting loudly about subjects that sound too high-minded for my tastes. This isn't normal. There's still a stretch of road to travel before we get to that. But it's normal enough that I can enjoy it. I've missed this dance. A few steps to the register, then a few more to the coffee machine. Twirl in and out of the kitchen and tiptoe between tables to exchange dirty dishes with fresh plates of baked treats. All the while wondering, what did Peter do to each of them? How did he sap their strength away in the first place? It's easy to imagine him preying on the grief of Julia and Ilias, but how did he take energy from Wilson or Pat? Do they know? Are they now thinking back to whatever it was Peter did to them with regret? Fear? Confusion? The more the evening wears on, the more their behavior stays the same. It's me who changes. The joy and relief I felt at seeing my clients and customers fill the dining room is gone. The comfortable familiarity of wrestling coffee out of the machine burns itself out of me. Without realizing it, I stop taking their money. I stop taking their orders. I serve them their usual with a cookie or a shoe pastry. I pull the lemon bars from the display and hide them in the kitchen. The people of Aquilo didn't come here because things were back to normal. They don't see, as I do, that the wound is closing. All they know is that the bleeding has stopped, and they can, for the first time, look at how deep the cut really is. They're here to do what I suppose generations of locals have done for decades here. They came to be healed. I smell apples. How, in a cafe as quiet as a funeral, did I not hear her come in? Am I going deaf or just getting so used to the sound of the door chimes that my brain filters out the song without my notice now? Olivia, I can explain. 
I turn around, hands full of mugs and small plates piled high with used napkins and empty sugar packets. She's holding a finger up next to her head. Translated from sass, it means shush. I asked you not to involve my husband, she says, walking towards the register, never releasing me from her gaze. She must have come directly from doing her job, her car parked less than a block away in her favorite spot. Her not-mad-but-disappointed tone strikes at my confidence with surgical precision. I had prepared my explanation and excuses as to why I ignored her request. I didn't really involve Henry. All I did was ask for apples. The circumstances demanded I ask for his help. I had it all planned out, but just that one finger, held high, looks like a queen's scepter demanding obedience. What must it have been like to be one of her kids? But, girl, I'll recognize fig apples whether in a pie or a crumble. You can make apple butter with those fruits and I'll still tell you which tree they were picked from. So don't tell me you didn't come to my home and ask my husband for help. I did, but only the apples. Her dark brown eyes are like the barrels of a shotgun, but more intimidating. Her brow is a flat line, crushing her eyelids into a frown. I feel like a dog trying to figure out what trick I can do to appease my master. Aquilo Mom is angry, and I have no idea how to get her to forgive me. Did he give you cloves and apricots, too? I nod. Mm-hmm, she says, also with a nod. He's a good man. Smart man. I'll have my usual. With that, Olivia Fig sits down on her favorite stool, putting her huge purse on the counter to fish out her wallet. I'm sorry. I swear all I did was ask for apples. I apologize while giving her a cup of coffee. One sugar, one cream. Good, she says, allowing for a small smile before sipping her drink. Can't imagine what else he would have done anyways. Well, the kids say he hunts vampires. The words slip through like fugitives urged on by my curiosity. I can't be certain what Olivia's reaction is going to be. And I should worry that I'll reignite my friend's irritation, but all I look for in her reaction is confirmation of the rumors. Instead, all I get is bored exasperation. Kids do say the darndest things, don't they? She chuckles. There ain't no vampires in Aquila. It's my turn to smile. Of course there aren't. And there's no such thing as an Aquilo tree. It's frustrating to know that Olivia is still hiding so much from me. That there are secrets in this town for which she has the key. However, when I look around the dining room, all I see are closed doors with intricate locks, and everyone is holding on to their own key. I think of the last few days. I think of my time with Agnes and the things Gulliver confided in her, but not to me. I'm no longer offended or hurt by the secrecy. I have my own secrets now. I get it. What it is to live in Aquilo. I own a cafe that used to belong to a witch. The raccoons in the back are immortal. I bake magic cakes. But I'm normal. Or at least, I try to be. What if I lean in next to Olivia, close enough to confide in her? What if I told you there's something lurking around that's worse than vampires? 
She raises an eyebrow and takes another sip of her coffee before casting a glance over my shoulder. Are you talking about the incubus or the hunger demon? Because one of those is at the door. Aquilo is written by J.F. Dubow and narrated and produced by me, Amy Frost. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You have no idea how much it helps. Want to support the show? Buy us a coffee. Visit ko-fi.com slash aquilo to donate a cup. Questions? Comments? Email us at aquilo at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the username aquilo.com.